0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think.
1: I wanted to start with a brief passage, a dialogue, uh, from a recent film, the film Lady Bird. Perhaps some of you saw it. It was directed by Greta Gerwig, and she's a non-Catholic, but she went to a Catholic high school, and she made this film reflecting on her own experiences of the experience of entering into this very foreign world, but also one that was very life-giving for her. So Towards the end of the film, this young woman, Lady Bird, uh, has been really angsty about her hometown of Sacramento, but she's written an essay about it, and she's meeting with the sister who runs her high school, and the sister is giving her advice on her college applications. And so Sister Sarah Jones says, you clearly love Sacramento. And Lady Bird responds, I do. Sarah Jones says, you write about Sacramento so affectionately. And with such care. Ladybird says, I was just describing it. And Sister Sarah Joan says, Well, it comes across as love. And Ladybird responds, Sure, I guess I pay attention. And Sister Sarah Joan says, Don't you think maybe they are the same thing, love and attention? This is a helpful passage, I think, to begin our reflections on the prayers of the Mass. Because the collects and prayers over the gifts and prayers after communion that we're going to be thinking about and reading tonight are prayers where most of us, everyone except the priest, doesn't say them aloud, but rather we listen, we hear, and we pay attention. And I think the more we can understand what we're praying, the more we can listen with attention, the more we can come to love the God we're praying to. So I'd like to go over some of these prayers as a way of helping us to enter more deeply into the spirit of the liturgy, to combine this love and attention. So I'd like to start off with a few reflections on liturgical prayer as a virtuous habit. So habits are things that we do again and again, that become easier to do as we do them. Of course, some habits are bad. A bad habit is one we've gotten into through neglecting the right, neglecting the good. But a virtuous habit is one where we're able to do the good thing without even trying at a certain point. We do it because we love to do it. All of the habits that we undertake are learned by doing. So Aristotle has a lovely image. I like this because I play the flute myself. He says, you learn to play the flute. By playing the flute. There's no other way around it. You can't just kind of read about playing the flute and then get there. You have to do it. But models are important. Having a teacher who's able to correct mistakes, as well as to show you the full range of possibilities of what an instrument can achieve, can be a tremendous help. Prayer is a habit, is an action that we can enter into more deeply the more we do it so long as we're doing it in the right way, so long as we're doing it with true attention, with true love. In this case, Christ is our teacher in prayer. He's the one who models both the commitment to prayer. Think about how throughout the Gospels, he takes time away from his active work, even from his miracles, to pray alone. But he also prays in the temple. So when Christ is found in the temple by his parents after three days, it's because they've gone every year to celebrate the major feast at the temple. So Jesus enters into the full liturgical life of the people of Israel, in addition to his own private prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray. He does this especially through the example of quoting the Psalms at various key moments of his life. Think about how on the cross he says, into your hands I, commi- I commend my spirit, as well as how he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also teaches us the Our Father. He teaches us this most perfect prayer. The church passes down this teaching of how to pray. Personal prayer is, of course, important for each of us. But we're also called to liturgical prayer, communal prayer. Communal prayer is important because Christ wills to save us not only as individuals. He does want to enter into an individual relationship with each of us, but he saves us primarily as members of a body, as members of the church. And any communal body needs to be able to pray in ways that are regularized, that become habitual, So you can't have a thousand people come together and each spontaneously pray in their own mode and do it in a way that's going to be harmonious. Liturgical prayer, as developed carefully by the church over the centuries, is a way of bringing together the impulses of the Holy Spirit, guided by the church's magisterium, so that we're able to all unite our hearts and our minds in prayer. Liturgical prayer is not merely the sum of the parts of those who pray. It's not more powerful just because 10 people are doing it rather than one or two. Rather, liturgical prayer is qualitatively different from private prayer because it's a public action that joins our efforts to those of Christ. Christ acts in and through us in the liturgy. So the Second Vatican Council teaches that where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, he's there in their midst. So he's in every liturgical assembly following Christ's own message. But also, when the scriptures are read in church, it's Christ himself who's speaking through the minister, proclaiming the readings. But then, in the most deep way, he comes to us in his presence in the Eucharist. We're going to be hearing more about this throughout this weekend. Liturgy is always an act of Christ and of the church, however modest a particular liturgy may be. In the liturgy, we follow carefully crafted models of prayer. So we don't just make it up as we go along. Some of these prayers date back to the earliest centuries of the church. Think especially of the Roman canon. So one thing that's interesting about the Roman canon is it doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit very much. That's one of the signs of its antiquity. It's developed before the church has fully articulated the gospel revelation of the Holy Spirit's equality with the Father and the Son. And so the Holy Spirit is not yet fully articulated in that prayer. It's a reminder of just how early it is. But there's lots of other prayers, in addition to those ones that are foundational to the liturgy, prayers that change from day to day. Those are the prayers we're going to be talking about tonight. These orations are actually reflecting lots of different eras of church history. So some of them date back to the patristic period. So scholars have identified some prayers, even some that we still pray today, as having been composed by great saints like Leo the Great, or by popes like Gelasius or Vigilius. Some of them date to the medieval period. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote several prayers that we still use frequently. Some of them are from the post-Reformation era. They're responding to the particular crises of that time, and some are even still being written today. Each time a new saint is canonized, the church composes a new oration that everybody's able to use. All liturgical prayers that we use in the Roman Catholic Mass follow particular structures. And so that's really what we're going to learn about tonight, how to understand these structures of prayer so that we can be more attentive when we hear them and when we assent to them with our amen at the end of the prayer. So I'd like to now move on to a brief description of what St. Thomas Aquinas has to say about what these liturgical prayers are all about. During my own studies here at the Dominican House of Studies, I wrote my license thesis on the way that Thomas Aquinas used liturgical prayers as a source for his own theology. So as I was reading through the Summa, I started to notice that he would often say things like, it's said in the collect that such and such. And then I was curious, how did the liturgy function for him? It seemed to be a source for making arguments. So somebody might say such and such, but the collect says this. And so therefore I need to think twice about it. So I started to systematically study each time he used words like it's said in the collect, or the church sings, or the church prays. And I found more and more places where he was drawing on his daily liturgical experience. So for me, that was very fruitful because it helped me enter into the liturgy more deeply, as well as to understand how the liturgy was forming so great a a thinker as Thomas Aquinas. So at one point in his Summa Theologiae, in his question on prayer, in the second part of the second part, question 83, article 17, Thomas actually tells you how to interpret a liturgical prayer. He, he's talking about a particular line in the, uh, in the letters of St. Paul, where Paul describes four different ways of praying. Paul talks about prayer, intercession, supplication, and thanksgiving. This is in, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, if I'm, I might be misremembering that. But uh, Thomas uses these four words as a way of understanding how each collect of the church, each opening prayer of the mass is structured. So Thomas says that in prayer, in liturgical prayer, we have to raise our minds to God. And one way of doing this is by considering his divine attributes. So one of the common ways we pray in church is to say things like almighty, ever-living God. So that's lifting our minds to consider his divine attribute of omnipotence, his everlasting character. And by articulating something like that, we're getting our minds ready to ask him particular things. So Thomas says that after we raise our minds to God, we ask for some particular need or intention. So this is called intercession. So some of these are very specific needs that we have. Some of them are more general. And then we articulate the reason why we have confidence that God can answer our prayers. So this is the supplication. We recognize God's sanctity and his ability to carry out what he promises to give us. So we're supplicating him by acknowledging that he wants to help us. And then finally, we give thanks for what we've already received. This is thanksgiving. So for Thomas, many of these aspects appear in liturgical prayers, So he gives one particular example of the prayer for Trinity Sunday, and he then in the Summa goes through how each of these parts uh, interact with with that prayer. So I'd like to uh, turn now to the three main genres of prayer that we have at the Mass. So at every Mass, we have certain parts that are the same every day. This is called the ordinary of the Mass. This is things like the Lord be with you and with your spirit, or the Lord have mercy. These things that sometimes they have slight variations depending on the season of the year, but for the most part, it's fixed. But then there's this other set of things that change from day to day called the proper of the Mass. And there's three main parts of this. One would be the songs we sing. So re- whether they're hymns newly composed or traditional Gregorian chants that are drawn from the scriptures, these are usually uh, praising God in various ways. So there's the musical aspect, and then there's the readings of the Mass. So these, uh, normally we have two readings or three readings, depending on the day, from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh so those two parts are very important, but today i'm going to focus on that third part of the proper, which is the orations the the collect, the prayer over the gifts, and the post communion prayer. So the collect we say towards the beginning of the mass, after we've done the introductory rite, we've done the Lord have mercy. And then the priest says, the Lord, the priest says, let us pray, and then offers a particular prayer. That's called the collect. The word collect seems to come from it's gathering together our intentions. And also, it's um, the, the name comes especially from the early practice of processions, where you would proceed from one church to another and you'd say a collect at the new church. So you're gathering the people together in all of these ways. So, the general instruction on the Roman Missal uh, says the following about what a collect is The priest calls upon the people to pray, and everybody, together with the priest, observes a brief silence so that they may become aware of being in God's presence and may call to mind their intentions. So, after the priest says, Let us pray, Sometimes it's a very short silence. Uh, Sometimes it's a little longer, but it's a moment to kind of make yourself attentive, be ready to hear, be ready to bring your own intentions to the mass as well. And then the priest pronounces the prayer, usually called the collect. And this is what the general instruction says. It's through which the character of the celebration finds expression the character of the celebration finds expression. So the Collect is often a very rich, dense text, and it changes from day to day. And on the great feasts of the year, like Easter and Pentecost, it's expressing the joy of the particular celebration being offered. But on ordinary weekdays or on normal Sundays, it's often a very rich, theologically dense prayer that's asking for general or particular needs. We're going to be going through some examples in a moment. And then uh, as the general instruction concludes, by an ancient tradition the Church of the church, the collect prayer is usually addressed to God the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit and is concluded with a Trinitarian ending. So this is a structure of prayer. So we usually pray to God, and in this case, God is primarily referring to the Father, and we're praying through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Much of our prayer is done in this way, but the collects are a particular liturgical expression of this. So that's a kind of very general overview of what's going on. What I'd like to do now is to go through a number of collects, and so we can read them, pray with them, and really try to understand what's happening. And I've, I've given you a selection in your handout, and uh, really we could work with any prayers from the Roman Missal. They're also rich, but I wanted to choose. Um, some rather than all. Um, so, for each of the genres, I'm going to go through what we're going to hear this coming Sunday, and then a few other examples I chose uh, that I think illustrate a range of interesting parts of these. This liturgical prayer. So, I'm going to start off by uh, reading and um, I- interpreting for you the prayer for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. So, what we're going to hear in just a few days. Almighty, ever living God who govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the pleading of your people and bestow your peace on our times. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. So this is a great prayer in lots of ways. Uh, It's a a very early prayer. Many of the prayers we have in the Roman Missal date back to the 7th or 8th centuries. Uh, Occasionally, some of them were modified after the Second Vatican Council in in slight ways, but uh, many of them are also uh, directly from the the longstanding tradition of the Church. So this particular one expresses uh, a lot of the themes that I was articulating before. So we start off with a divine address we describe who God is. He's the almighty, ever-living God. So this is focusing on two of God's attributes. So as you may know, at the beginning of the Summa, Thomas Aquinas talks about the divine attributes, what we can say about God. We can say lots of things negatively about him. We can say fewer things positively, but some of the things we can say is he's omnipotent and he's everlasting or eternal. There's never a time when God was not And there was, there's nothing that God could not do. So in this particular prayer, we use a fairly common expression, almighty ever living God. So a lot of the colleagues of the church start this way. And then we begin to articulate why we're confident in God. We say, who govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. So in a certain way, these words are expanding on our title for God. He's the almighty ever-living God who governs everything in heaven and on earth. There's nothing that's outside of his range of influence. So this confidence then allows us to ask for first a universal thing and then a particular thing. So the general request is that he hear our pleading, that he really listen to what we need. And here, keep in mind, the church asks us to bring our own intentions to the mass as well. So this is partially, partially how we can join ourselves to this offering. And then there's this more specific request, bestow your peace on our times. So this is about the here and now. So we want God to hear us, but we want him in particular to give his peace here and now. And then we end with a Trinitarian doxology, so this fulsome praise of God uh, by saying we're praying all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, so that's invoking the second person. And then we're saying that Christ is always together with the Holy Spirit, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. So that's an introduction to one particular prayer. Uh, So as I go through a couple more, I'm not going to end with the doxology each time, just so we can get through a couple more. I'd like um, for the next couple of ones to ask if somebody could volunteer to read the prayer itself. Could somebody read the ninth Sunday of ordinary time?
0: O God, whose providence never fails in its design, keep from us we humbly beseech you all that might harm us and grant us all that works for our good.
1: Thank you. So here we express our faith in God's providence and omnipotence. So different elements. So that God is watching over everything. There's nothing outside of his loving concern. And we do this in this case negatively rather than positively. In the last one, we were talking about how God governs all things. Here we kind of say the same thing but in an opposite way by saying God's providence never fails in its design. So it's it's an interesting kind of subtlety that we're we're saying something really powerful and, and proper about God, but we're doing it by denying what we can't say about God. We can't say that God's providence ever fails. There's nothing outside of his power. So after and notice that in this case, we have a very short articulation of who God is. We don't give any adjectives at first. We just say, oh God. So this is another way of doing it—to kind of briefly lift our minds to God, and then think about His power, His His pro- properties, and then we go on to make requests in this particular one. So keep us, we humbly beseech you; keep from us, we humbly beseech you, all that might harm us, and grant that all our all that grant, excuse me, and grant all that works for our good. So here, just like we started off by this positive title, God. And then this negative thing of whose providence is never, never fails, we similarly make two requests, again, a negative one and a positive one. So the negative is to keep us from harm, so to not allow some bad thing to happen, not allow that providence to fail. And then the positive thing is to grant us uh, what is good. So um, what's interesting here is that there's so many different ways of expressing our prayer. So the colleagues of the church really have this richness, this variety. So they're partially um, so, so varied so that each time we hear them, we can pay attention more and not just let them slip by. The next one, the 26th Sunday of Ordinary Time, this is actually one of the ones that Thomas Aquinas cites over and over again uh, throughout his writing. So it's it's really a very rich, theologically deep prayer, the 26th Sunday. Could somebody volunteer to read this one? Mm-hmm. O God, who manifest your almighty power above all by pardoning and showing mercy, bestow we pray your grace abundantly upon us, and make those hastening to attain your promises heirs to the treasures of heaven. Thank you. So it's these opening lines that Thomas quotes again and again in his writings. O God, who manifests your almighty power above all by pardoning and showing mercy. So this is a really amazing idea that God's omnipotence is connected to his mercy, that his mercy shows how powerful he is. There's another prayer that has a very uh, related theme. It's a prayer that goes, O God, to whom it is proper to be merciful and to spare. So Thomas quotes both prayers throughout his writings. And what's interesting is sometimes he quotes them together as well. And he sort of synthesizes them that it's proper to God. And he shows his omnipotence most of all in this way. Interestingly, these prayers uh, have been very influential on Pope Francis as well. So he quotes sometimes Thomas's writings on mercy, uh, where Thomas is quoting the liturgy, and then Francis will draw on these same prayers as well. So it's interesting that there's this long tradition of letting ourselves be be formed by these liturgical prayers. So after articulating God's mercy and omnipotence, we then make two requests in in the second half. So we request abundant grace and then fulfillment of promises. Let's see. So the next example uh, comes from a particular feast of the year, Christmas, which we just celebrated. Could somebody read this collect for Christmas at the Mass during the day? Mm-hmm. Oh God, who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more wonderfully restored it, grant, we pray, that we may share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Thank you. So this is a very um, artfully constructed prayer. Many of these collects have this kind of mirror structure where the first half will be reflected in a different way in the second half. So here there's a hierarchy, first of all, between creation and restoration. So God wonderfully created human nature. Human nature in itself is dignified, but it's still more wonderful that he restored it. So, uh, that grace, uh, the grace to restore humanity uh, to fallen innocence, shows God's power even more than uh, creation itself. So, you can see this is a little bit related to that idea that His mercy shows His power. St. Augustine, in one of his writings, says that God, that creating the world, shows God's power, but restoring the world shows it even more. So uh, this is an instance where it might be that the author of this prayer is reflecting on Augustine's theology and kind of expressing it in a liturgical way. So then the second half of the prayer uh, goes on to talk about an upward and downward movement. So uh, Grant, we pray that we may share in Christ's divinity, that we might be lifted up beyond human nature itself to a share in divinity itself Uh, And that this is possible because Christ has humbled himself to share in our humanity. So Christ has come down to us. The son of God has become one of us, has taken on human nature, which is dignified in order to restore human nature. So there's this very tight connection between all these different ideas. Uh, so this the incarnation is what brings about this, this joining of heaven and earth, this joining of uh, God's omnipotence and his mercy to this very frail human uh, humanity. And through that, it's able to restore humanity itself. So, if you've ever uh, heard a priest um, celebrating mass as he uh, mixes, as he, excuse me, as he mixes the water and the wine, uh, he's supposed to say a set of words quietly. Some priests uh, say it more loudly, but if you're uh, if you're nearby, you might hear it. Uh, as the priest mixes the water and wine, he says, uh, "May we come to share in the divinity of Christ, just as he humbled himself to share in our humanity." So that short prayer at the mixing of the water and wine happens every day at Mass, and it's uh, related to this uh, this ancient collect from Christmas. So the next one on Easter Sunday uh, gives us a different way of um, entering into a particular moment of salvation history. Would somebody like to read this Easter Sunday one? O God, on this day, through your only begotten Son, that conquered death and unlocked for us the past Grant, we pray that we who keep the solemnity of the Lord's resurrection, may through the renewal brought by your spirit rise up in the light of life. Thank you. So one thing you might have noticed is that many of the prayers we've looked at are very, very short. Uh, So uh, uh, colics, they were originally all written in Latin. And uh, most of the earliest ones are representing this this Roman idea of wanting to express a lot in as few words as possible. But some of them go on a little bit longer. So the Easter Sunday one is a good example of one that, that kind of makes several points as it goes along. So first of all, um, this collect is commemorating this moment of salvation history, uh, of Easter, of Christ's resurrection. And so in this case, we say, O oh God, who on this day... So it's emphasizing the todayness, the, the presence. So throughout the course of the liturgical year, the mysteries of Christ's life, the mysteries of Christ's death and resurrection are commemorated solemnly. And St. Leo the Great actually says that in a mysterious way, those mysteries are made present to us through the sacraments. So as we go through the liturgical year, we're encountering in a very particular way, this aspect of Christ's saving mystery. And uh, those words um, unlocked for us the path to eternity, that that happened on this day. This is another of the phrases that Thomas Aquinas loves to quote. So, um, in fact, in this case, he's following in the example of other medieval theologians. So many uh, medieval theologians would ask the question, when did it become possible to get to heaven? And so some would say it's really uh, at Christ's birth, uh, because uh, as Christ enters into the world, uh, the doors of heaven are opened. Others would say it's at Christ's death. Others would say it's his resurrection. And so a lot of medieval theologians would draw on this particular prayer of the liturgy to say, well, the church says it's that Christ at his death unlocked for us the path to eternity. So it's an interesting example. It doesn't solve every problem. Thomas, of course, has a way of saying, well, we can say it's in this way and in this way and in this way. So, you know, but he uses this as a way of entering into it. So um, the second part of the prayer, after praising God for having opened up heaven to us, we then start to ask him for something. We say, grant, we pray, that we who keep the solemnity of the Lord's resurrection. So Now we're talking about ourselves. First, we talk about what God has done on this day. Then we're talking about what we're doing on this day. God died and he was raised. So he opened up for us heaven. We, all we have to do is commemorate it, is to enter into its mystery in some way. So, uh, God's work of resurrection is compared with our work. Of course, we're not saying they're equal, but we're saying our thinking about it and praying about it and entering liturgically into this mystery is giving us here and now some share in it. So then uh, we conclude the prayer by saying, may through the renewal brought by your spirit rise up in the light of life. So here we're talking about Christ's resurrection, and we're also talking about us rising up. So there's two senses of rising up going on. So one is that here and now, we're living with the spirit of the resurrection. We're trying to let Christ's resurrection truly mean something in our lives there's a beautiful story of uh, a Dominican friar uh, running into Cardinal Ratzinger one day um, in St. Peter's Square. And this Dominican friar was kind of in a bad mood. He was having some difficulties in something. And so he starts telling Cardinal Ratzinger about these problems. And at a certain point, the cardinal gets a little bit annoyed, uh, you know, because the friar is just sort of going on and on. He says to him, John, do you believe in the resurrection? And so this friar sort of a little bit taken aback by this question. And he says, yes, yes, of course I do. And then Ratzinger says, then everything's going to be okay. So to, to, truly, <laughs> to truly accept that, uh, that God has been raised from the dead is to, to be able to let go, to, to truly live in a risen way ourselves. But of course, everybody knows that here and now, we're going to have troubles, we're going to have difficulties, but we're also looking forward to the future. So that we might rise up in the light of life, that we might one day live forever with God in the bodily resurrection. The next prayer is actually for Thomas Aquinas himself. So he, of course, was a saint uh, and that we commemorate him in a particular way. Could somebody read uh, the collect for St. Thomas Aquinas?
0: O God, who made St. Thomas Aquinas outstanding in his seal for holiness and and his study of sacred doctrine, Grant us, we pray, that we may understand what
1: he taught and imitate what he accomplished. Thank you. So here I just want to make the point that uh, by talking about a particular saint, not just what God has done for everyone, but what God has done for Thomas Aquinas, we're going into the particularity of, of how God works in our lives. So God works in the lives of individuals. So God really did guide Thomas Aquinas. God is the one who made Thomas Aquinas outstanding in zeal. God is the one who guided his study of sacred doctrine. Of course, as you may know, Thomas Aquinas himself wrote some of the most beautiful prayers about study, preparatory prayers uh, for when he would begin uh, to study sacred theology, and to think about how God is always guiding him. And uh, not only in study, but also in zeal for holiness. So then we go on after praising God for doing this for Aquinas, we then want to have something for ourselves. So we're trusting that God can work with individuals. So we want to to ask for something ourselves. So in this case, it's that we may understand what he taught and imitate what he accomplished. So to think about how the saints are examples for us, we learn from their teachings and their actions and God's grace is what's primary. It's God who made Thomas a saintly teacher and, and who's able to make us imitate his example and understand him. So it's a good thing to, uh, to pray when we're trying to enter into such deep theology. So I'd like uh, just in the interest of time to move now on to the prayer over the gifts. So, um, I've gone through a variety of collects. So, these are prayers that are said um, at the beginning of Mass, but they can also be said on other occasions. So, these can actually often be used as private prayers as well. Uh, if you find them in the Magnificat or in, in, uh, on Ibreviary or a variety of, of different ways of encountering them, you can pray these on your own in, and they're, they're very meaningful. They're also used at the liturgy of the hours. Uh, so we, um, on Sundays in particular, we say the Collect of the Sunday uh, at morning prayer and at evening prayer and so forth. So Collects, in a sense, are they're very specific in what they ask for, but they're also very general. They can be used in a variety of ways. Interestingly, um, the Anglican tradition, uh, of course, draws on the Catholic liturgical tradition of the Middle Ages, and Anglicans had the practice of memorizing the Collect of the day. So part of Sunday school was. Uh, you would have to learn your collect. And I think that's something we should try to do as well. You know, these are so rich, we can really think about them. So the other two types of prayers, the prayer over the gifts and the prayer after communion, these are much less general. uh, They go to the specific liturgical moment much more than the collect does. So uh, they, um, they really express what we're doing at these two parts of the Mass as we prepare to offer the Eucharist and then give thanks for having received it. So um, one of the things in general about the prayers over the gifts is that they tend to be less specific about naming God and more specific about talking about this moment of the liturgy, of asking that our gifts be accepted by God and that he transform us through this offering. So the second Sunday in Ordinary Time, uh, the one we're going to hear this Sunday, um, has a really beautiful prayer. This is actually one of the most ancient prayers of the Mass. And it's one that's given rise uh, to uh, ways of understanding what we mean when we say the Mass is a sacrifice. So uh, the second Sunday of Ordinary Time, the prayer goes, Grant us, O Lord, we pray, that we may participate worthily in these mysteries. For whenever the memorial of this sacrifice is celebrated, the work of our redemption is accomplished through Christ our Lord. So there's a very beautiful balance in this prayer between an emphasis on our participation and God's work. So uh, we talk about active participation in the liturgy. That means to bring everything about ourselves to the mass, to pay attention, to say the responses, to be able to really hear with understanding. Active participation has this very broad meaning. So we pray here that we may participate worthily in the mysteries. So again, to recognize that this is not just our effort alone. It's God working in and through us. For those of us who are baptized Christians, we've been given the ability to pray in a special way. And so we're asking God to activate that here so that we may participate worthily in these mysteries. And then we, in this case, we say something about why we're asking for this. For whenever the memorial of the sacrifice is celebrated, the work of our redemption is accomplished. So we can distinguish here between uh, the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, which happened once for all, and this memorial of that sacrifice, which is what we're encountering in the liturgy. And in fact, that sacrifice is made present. We're not sacrificing Christ a second time or a third time. It's that one sacrifice once for all, which is made present and has an effect here and now. And so we say the work of our redemption is accomplished when this memorial is celebrated. So it's a really, really complex and beautiful prayer uh, that's quoted by Aquinas. It's quoted by the Second Vatican Council. It's quoted by Pius XII. People over and over again, as they're trying to understand what we mean by the mass as a sacrifice, they come to this prayer. So it's a really privileged uh, moment that we happen to have the second Sunday, in ordinary time coming up. Interestingly, we also use it on uh, Holy Thursday, so it's it's really getting us close to that institution of the Eucharist as well. So the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, uh, could somebody read this prayer over the gifts? Lord, we bring to your
0: altar these offerings of our We to receive them transform them into the sacrament of
1: our So here we begin by emphasizing our own effort. So uh, we, of course, first name God uh, as Lord in this case. And then we tell him that we bring to your altar these offerings of our service. So here we're talking about the bread and wine, but also ourselves. So the church teaches us that uh, when the priest is offering the bread and wine at the mass, we are to offer ourselves along with that host, along with that uh, bread and wine to be ourselves transformed. We're not uh, transubstantiated into Christ in the way those gifts are, but we ourselves are transformed by our encounter. So we're bringing something. Of course, everything we bring is first the gift of God, but we're responding to his gift and bringing ourselves. And then after emphasizing ourselves, we then emphasize what God is doing here. So um, in the second half, it says, be pleased to receive them, we pray. So first to have a sort of passive thing that God might receive our gifts. But then we ask that he transform them into the sacrament of our redemption, So this is a really beautiful articulation, I think, of this mystery of transubstantiation. It's not using that word, but it's saying, let these gifts, this bread and wine we bring, truly be transformed. And then to give the title of the sacrament of redemption. So there's loads of ways of talking about the Eucharist, of naming the Eucharist. And uh, the sacrament of redemption is a beautiful one, that it's the sacrament by which this restoration, this merciful action comes about. In the prayer for the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time, there's a very similar phrase: "the sacrament of eternal life." So there's lots of parallels, but uh, subtle differences between each one. So could somebody read the prayer for the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time? Oh Lord our God, we once established many things to sustain us in our
0: Grant that we come for style, the sacrament of eternal life.
1: Thank you. So here, in contrast to the fourth Sunday where we emphasized ourselves first, here we emphasize what God does first. We say, O Lord, our God, who once established these created things to sustain us in our frailty. So here, uh, the prayer is talking about um, the temporal sustenance we get, ordinary food. This is a gift from God. Any any food we eat, we of course need to eat to, to survive. This itself is a creation of God. It's a natural thing. But he goes beyond the natural. Uh, he also gives us eternal sustenance. So we're praying that these ordinary created things, this bread and wine, maybe, may become for us now the sacrament of eternal life. So it's a, a different way of asking for this transformation to take place. So one thing to say is that um, these prayers, the prayers over the gifts are often anticipating what's happening in the Eucharistic prayer at the moment of transubstantiation. So these prayers don't bring it about um, in the way that the words of institution, Christ's own words, this is my body and this is my blood. That's when we as Roman Catholics tend to understand the transformation is really happening. But these prayers over the gifts are preparing us for that and expressing that desire. So now I'd like to move to the post communion prayer. So this is going into um, how we express our thanks for what we receive. So the general instruction has a nice uh, description of what's happening in the post communion prayer. To bring to completion the prayer of the people of God and also to conclude the whole of the communion rite, the priest pronounces the prayer after communion in which he prays for the fruits of the mystery just celebrated. So the fruits of the mystery, this is a kind of technical term. So we talk about the fruits of Holy Communion being the spiritual blessings that we receive from uh, encountering and receiving the sacrament itself. So the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church gives a helpful short description of these various fruits of Holy Communion. So Holy Communion increases our union with Christ and with our church, with the church. So it's about unity with with Christ in the church it preserves and renews the life of grace received at baptism and confirmation and makes us grow in love for our neighbor it strengthens us in charity wipes away venial sins and preserves us from mortal sin in the future so this whole idea of the fruits of communion is really rooted in the prayers after communion that we pray, because the prayers are all articulating these fruits. They're helping us to understand uh, the full depths of the mystery we've just received. So the second Sunday for Ordinary Time, again, is a great example of what this genre of prayer is all about. So in this case, Pour on us, O Lord, the spirit of your love, and in your kindness make those you have nourished by this one heavenly bread One in mind and heart through Christ our Lord. So, a lot of those ideas of the fruits of communion mentioned in the compendium to the Catechism are articulated in this prayer. So first of all, we start with a Trinitarian invocation. This doesn't always happen in post-communion prayers, but it does in this one. So uh, this prayer starts off by asking the Lord to pour the Spirit upon us. So invoking those two persons of the Trinity, and then uh, in in a sense, uh, talking about Christ as the heavenly bread. So all three persons are, are drawn into this particular prayer. And then what we're praying for is a renewal of the unity that is represented and brought about by the Eucharist. So uh, that um, this is, we're nourished by this one heavenly bread, uh, and we ask to be made one in mind and heart. So this is actually a reference to uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, where there's a description of the early church, uh, the apostles, the disciples, uh, the early men and women who are followers of Christ, uh, being a community of believers that was of one heart and one mind. So we're asking that each time we receive communion, or at least on the second Sunday of Ordinary Time, uh, to really be brought back to that original unity. Again, a unity not just because we've agreed on something, but this unity that flows from receiving Christ. The sixth Sunday of Ordinary Time uh, gives us a different, um, a different kind of whole feel. Could somebody read this prayer for us? Thank you. So here we refer to what's just happened in our opening words. So having fed upon these heavenly delights. So many of the post-communion prayers are referring to this reception of the Eucharist. In this case, uh, there's a subtle reference to uh, the manna from the Old Testament. So, Wisdom sixteen twenty talks about how the the manna was endowed with all delights and conforming to every taste. So, uh, we're we're likening the Eucharist to the heavenly manna, which is delightful. Uh, and then, what we're praying for here is that we might have an ongoing longing to receive the Eucharist; that it not just be a momentary experience, but something that's going to continue to uh, to to. To be something impelling us onwards. Could somebody read the eighth Sunday in ordinary time uh, prayer? Mm-hmm.
0: Nourished by your saving gifts, we beseech your mercy, Lord, that by the same sacrament with which you feed us in the present age, you may make us partakers of life eternal.
1: Thank you yeah so here we have two time frames, so again, just the variety of different ideas expressed in these prayers. So the Eucharist is something we're receiving here in this present life, but we're also uh, it's pointing us beyond. It's pointing us to eternal life, so that we may be partakers of life eternal. And here it's good to be reminded that in fact, the Eucharist is just for this life. So uh, the Eucharist and the scriptures, all of these things by which we encounter God here and now, these will all pass away when we get to heaven. In heaven, we're seeing Christ, we're seeing God's essence face to face. We don't need the veil of the, of the Eucharist. We don't need the instrument of the scriptures anymore. We're going to have this immediate connection. But here and now, we do need these things. Christ has given himself to us in this way uh, as part of our journey. So throughout this weekend, we're going to be reflecting on some of these ways in which the here and now is, uh, is strengthened through the, through the liturgy itself. So I'd like to conclude um, with just a brief reflection on a prayer written by Thomas Aquinas himself, uh, the Collect for Corpus Christi, because this is a prayer we're going to hear several times uh, throughout this weekend. So every time we do benediction, we uh, we say this collect um, at, after the blessing itself. And then each time we join the friars for the Liturgy of the Hours, because we're in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, we pray an antiphon that Thomas Aquinas wrote, as well as the Collect for the Blessed Sacrament sacrament. So I've given you this at the end of your handout. So the um, the antiphon is, O sacred banquet in which Christ becomes our food. The memory of his passion is celebrated. The soul is filled with grace, and the pledge of future glory is given to us. And then there's this versicle, which is drawing on that same text from Wisdom about the manna fulfilling every every blessing, every taste. You gave them bread from heaven, containing every blessing. And then there's this prayer by Aquinas, which is so powerful. O God, who in this wonderful sacrament have left us a memorial of your passion, grant us, we pray, so to revere the sacred mysteries of your body and blood, that we may always experience in ourselves the fruits of your redemption. I could give a whole lecture just on this prayer and this antiphon alone, but I just as a concluding idea, I want to share with you one way of understanding what Thomas is trying to do with this antiphon and collect. So Thomas, uh, in his more systematic writing about the Eucharist, he talks about how each the Eucharist, as well as all the other sacraments, have really three temporal moments. Uh, So there's the past, which is commemorated, and then there's the present where something is brought about, and there's the future that we're pointing onwards to. So in the Eucharist, um, we are commemorating something from the past, the passion of Christ, which is in a sense, the, the power, the action that impels everything else. Uh, And here and now, the soul is being filled with grace. So we are being changed as we encounter Christ in the Eucharist. And then the Eucharist is pointing towards the future glory, the glory in which the Eucharist itself will pass away because we'll be encountering the true reality. Uh, And then in the prayer itself, um, we get these ideas in a a different way. So that um, first we talk about the past, uh, the memorial and then we revere here and now this mystery before us, which is the presence of Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. And then we ask that uh, this, this grace we're receiving here and now may be eternal for us, maybe always something we're experiencing. So there's this outward sign of the Eucharist, this, uh, the, the ritual we go through, the bread and wine before they're transformed. These are then here and now through the Eucharistic celebration made into this presence that points beyond itself that's ultimately bringing us to the reality of God's grace itself. So I, I hope that this uh, talk has given you a sense of the richness, the variety of the church's liturgical expressions, so that as you're participating in mass during this weekend, as well as beyond, you might be able to try to pay attention more, to be able to be filled with the love that the church is expressing for God through these prayers And that more and more, when you say amen at the end, you can say it not just as something we say because we say it, but as something because you're really joining yourself uh, to those prayers. So thank you very much for your attention. Um, I have a question about, I noticed, at least from the ones that you pulled out, that God is used in the politics and Lord is more often used in the prayer of the gifts in the post-communion. Mm. Um, is there a reason behind that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I hadn't noticed that. Uh, so um, God and Lord are, they're they, they are two different words that, of course, they, they draw on two different aspects of scriptural revelation. Uh, so um, Lord is usually a kind of... Um, place name for God's very own name. So the, the, uh, the Jews would say Adonai rather than saying God's name. So that's translated as Lord. And then God is a different way of referring. So, uh, it's a really interesting insight though. I, I, I don't know whether that's a selection bias or whether, um, that is, uh, a common feature, but it's something to think about. So thank you. I, I would say there's, it's an interesting stylistic point. Uh,
0: what I find interesting in David's comment is, like, it makes sense that the collect and the post prayer are said, like, subjunctively because in our fallen human nature we can just mess things up and reject all the graces that are offered us. But because the sacrament works ex operato, it's interesting that even the prayer or the gifts are expressed subjunctively, like, may this happen, as opposed to, like, I don't know, thank you in advance for this because you going to happen.
1: Right. I don't know if it is. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, I'd say often what the prayers of the gifts are, they're, they're, pointing towards what's going to happen in the Eucharistic prayer, but they're especially subjunctively praying that we might get benefits from them. But um, yeah, there, there is this sense um, in a lot of prayers, like in the Roman canon itself um, before the consecration, we're, we're looking towards it. Liturgical time is weird. You know, it's not always linear. Uh, So even sometimes after, um, after the consecration, we're still praying that, that God may be blessing us through this. So there's, it's not a kind of exact science. But it is an interesting point uh, to see that um, we trust that God is going to do what he promises, uh, but also our devotion is important. So um, the mass is always the mass, no matter who says it, no matter how attentive we are. But the more attentive we are, the more devout the priest is, the more uh, attentive and participatory the lay people are, um, the more they are going to be benefiting by it and also interceding for others as well. Yes, sir.
0: So, like, what do you do when you're just not feeling it and, like, this stuff doesn't really strike your intellect too well? Mm -hmm. You just kind of, like, you know, sitting there, like, kind of
1: like, uh, what do you do then? Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I think it's so, first of all, it's worth pointing out that a lot of these prayers are hard to get the first time we hear them. You know, so some part of what, what I want to encourage you all is is to if you have the time to kind of try to read them ahead of mass, um, because that way you can kind of hear them with more attention. Um, but certainly, yeah, w- um, we're not supposed to take our spiritual temperature all the time. Like uh, sometimes we're going to be more attentive, sometimes less attentive, and we we want to trust in God's love for us even in those moments of inattention. But I think part of it is recognizing that there's something that we ought to be paying attention to, not in the sense of like burdening ourselves with obligation, but in the sense of really feeling the... Desiring uh, to desire, as it were. Think about Christ's words um, before the Last Supper. With desire, I have desired to celebrate with you. So uh, I think that each of us needs to, in a sense, cultivate our desire. And that's actually what some of these prayers are doing. They're asking that we may desire more uh, to to participate, to understand. Um, So, yeah, I would say don't worry about it, but also take it as a challenge to, to enter more deeply
0: question so i apologize but i'm really interested in this last um, prayer the provost christian mm-hmm. and what you're saying about time right um, what happens to time in the liturgy it's not the measure of motion the way we usually think
1: about it in terms of past time something it seems like all three are happening at once and it's just a strange phenomenon yeah no it, it is a fascinating one yeah so the liturgy um w- uh, Cardinal Ratzinger in his book the spirit of the liturgy he he goes into the concept of how uh this day is a special thing and you know he's also responding I think to uh Saint John's Gospel which often talks about the hour or my hour so there's this mysterious way in which um, liturgy is joining heaven and earth so we're not alone uh, so even even if there's just Two of us in a room. Even if there's just a priest alone at an altar, uh, there's somehow more than that. Uh, that the angels are there. That God Himself is is making Himself present. So liturgy certainly goes beyond place, and it also seems to go beyond time, uh, because um, again, we're not saying literally that we are in the presence of Calvary. We're not. It's not like a time portal. Um, but somehow God's power is making itself felt here and now. And uh, maybe w- this is a, perhaps a weird analogy, but to think about how um, Mary is conceived immaculately in anticipation of the merits of her son. So God, God is outside of time, but he enters into time and he's transforming that. Um, so if we really think about heaven as a place where that is in a sense beyond the Eucharist, we can see that um, we're we're having this temporary moment in which we are uh, being lifted up into that. Um, of course the clock is still ticking, but at the same time it's not. So, um, I, I think we can't really, we can't give a very precise philosophical definition of what's happening, but I, I think to see it as a mystery that we can enter more deeply into. Time
0: for one more question, maybe. Um, in the collect for the 26th and
1: Yeah. So I think it's that, um, it's really hard to forgive. You know, I think this is, um, in a sense, we're, we're psychologizing based on our own experience, you know, um, and, we're, we're attributing to God something similar. So of course it's no harder for God to do one thing than another. Uh, but it is very hard for us to forgive someone who has hurt us. And then to think about how, um, how God is doing that. Um, he's, he's not just establishing a friendship. He's, he's restoring it. He's, we're the ones who were at fault, you know? So it's, think about Christ's line. Uh, you know it it's relatively any anyone can die for his friend but to die for somebody who is not your friend to to die for an enemy uh to offer your life for an enemy uh that requires even more so i think uh to to see this uh it's reflecting i think a human uh hierarchy of difficulty uh but it's also um it's articulating how how amazing forgiveness is. Uh, of course, God's forgiveness is far deeper than ours uh, because our forgiveness is, is not changing something. Um, it's changing ourselves, but um, God's forgiveness is truly transforming us uh, through its forgiveness. And to see that that um, cr- takes this immense power. So um, does that help at all? Thank you.